everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the Horrid Halls of Academia. I'm Alex West with Andrea Subisati. And we are here to talk to you today about a film that we've talked so much about, but never devoted an episode to. And, you know, Andrea and I always refer to this podcast as our baby, so it kind of makes sense to talk about the most infamous baby of them all. And that would be Roman Polanski's 1968 film, Rosemary's Baby. Paramount Pictures presents. Hey, let's make love. Mia Farrell. Co-starring John Cassavetti. Let's have a baby. Oh, Ro, honey, for God's sakes, don't cry, I'm all right? Home. I won't. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, you're young and healthy. You have lots of children. Madame and Monsieur shall have the dessert after all. Mousse au chocolat. Or as many calls it, chocolate mouse. It's <laughs> mm, delicious. It has an undertaste. A chalky undertaste. Nice. Sleep is what you need. Good night's sleep. You better go down below, miss. This is no dream. This is really happening. Written for the screen and directed by Roman Polanski. From the best-selling novel by Ira Levin, Ruth Gordon, Sidney Blackmer, Morris Evans, and Ralph Bellamy. In a William Castle production. Rosemary's Baby. I feel like it's true that we've tap danced around talking about this movie. We bring it up when we're talking about different movies. I feel like it was a no-brainer that one day we would talk about it, but we kind of put it off because we're like, this film is going to be so huge. It's going to be a huge episode because there's tons to talk about. There's tons of themes and, and so many layers and darkness and innuendo and stuff. But I have to admit that when... I rewatched it this week and I started doing some readings. I found it was actually a bit more straightforward than I'd remembered it. I agree. I think it's straightforward, but it kind of depends on what angle you're coming at it from. And I think out of maybe all of the movies we've talked about, this is the one that has the most academic writings, the most takes, the most blog posts, the most classes in university taught on it, or it's at least included in so many classes that it's kind of omnipresent. And I think for me, I was a little scared to bring it to the podcast because I wasn't sure what we could really add to it. But, you know, there's so little in horror academia or in film academia that I think is invaluable. So it can't hurt, right? It's not like I'm going to drug you and like take advantage of you while you sleep, Andrea. And suddenly I don't want to drink my wine anymore. <laughs> drink it. Drink it. Tastes chalky. <laughs> 
Yeah, and the other thing is that a lot of the academic stuff that we pulled up to look at didn't really talk about what I'm wanting to talk about, so that will make it hopefully an interesting podcast. It's exciting for us. It's a milestone in the podcast, we think, and we hope you dig it. So there are two films I really think of as leading the way in terms of contemporary horror, and that would be obviously Rosemary's Baby and as well George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. Those did a lot to place horror and horror films and horror narratives in a kind of everyday situation. Now they're both very different stories and they use a lot of really different methods but on a lot of levels they're actually kind of similar and both of these films I really love that terror is tied to the human experience. That there are some kind of elements in each of these films that we encounter in everyday life. Now you know we're not all being raped by the devil or being terrorized by the undead but there are so many themes and issues within them that we face day to day and I think that's what's made these films really interesting really iconic and in some senses kind of untouchable another important similarity between Rosemary's Baby and Night of the Living Dead apart from being genre trailblazers is that both films came out kind of on the cusp of the end of the 60s to the 70s and it was a great transition for horror that brought the horror onto American soil as both films situate these stories in the U.S., in the everyday, in the recognizable, like you said. Night of the Living Dead has a very famous, iconic American flag in the very opening scene and there's a lot of New York City. Obviously, we're going to talk about architecture and landmarks as they come up, but these are two films that really brought the horror back into American soil and into our homes. Another big thing I want to bring up about this movie is I feel like it's a movie that non-horror fans also really love. People who maybe don't enjoy traditional horror because of the gore, because of the nudity, because of some of the more over-the-top outlandish things. This was a very delicate, psychological horror that just about everyone could get behind. I know my mom really loves it. One of my favorite times I've ever watched Rosemary's Baby. I watched it a few years ago, I think just when it came out on Criterion, with two friends of mine, and they're a couple. And my female friend, she's really scared of horror films. Like, she outright admits it. She's total pansy when it comes to them, and she's cool with it. And it was right around Halloween, so we wanted to watch something scary, but keeping her in mind, we didn't know what to watch. So me and the guy, we had a we had a little powwow, and we talked it over, and we're like, okay, do you think Jenny could handle Rosemary's Baby? Do you think she could? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we sat down with Jenny, and we were like, okay, there are some freaky parts, but we think you can handle it. And she was like, okay. And so we watched the movie, and it finishes, and she was like, wow, I really liked that. Really liked it. But guys, I was not scared at all. Great movie, but totally not scared. And I was like, oh, okay. So I head home on my merry way, and I get all these text messages the next morning from my female friend saying that she woke up in a state of blind terror, staring at her now fiancé, thinking that he was going to do something to her or he was after her in some way. She was just convinced of it. So it was a total psychological scare that she still talks about to this day. Those are my favorite scares, those slow burns that stay with you. That's how horror should be. Rosemary's Baby is based on the Ira Levin novel of the same name. Rosemary's Baby starts with a young couple, Rosemary and Guy Woodhouse, looking at an apartment in the Bramford. And the Bramford is kind of known as this place that was haunted by witches and they were cannibals and a lot of unsavory stuff was going on there. 
They look at an apartment where an old woman died. So all of her stuff is still in there, but the place is so big and it seems so established that Rosemary really wants to move in there. Guy, who's an actor, kind of feels uncertain about it, but you know what? If his little darling wife wants it, he'll do it for her. It's bigger than the other one. Yeah, it's more expensive too, you know? It's better located. Yeah, well, God knows I could walk to all the theaters from here. Oh, Guy, let's take it, please. That living room could be... Oh, please, let's take it. Okay, darling, we get out of the other lease, okay. They move into the apartment, and all seems to be going pretty well. It's a little creepy, and one day when Rosemary is doing her laundry in the very creepy basement, she meets another young woman named Terry. Rosemary and Guy are out for a walk one night, and they see that Terry has actually committed suicide or possibly something more sinister, and they meet the people she was staying with, the Castavets. They're an older couple, and they seem kind of nonplussed about Terry's death. A few days later, Minnie Castavets comes to pay a visit to Rosemary. She invites Rosemary and Guy over for dinner, and they attend, Guy kind of begrudgingly. Throughout the meal, there's a lot of talk, and Roman Castavets talks about all the pull he has in theater and how great Guy is and how he's sure he's seen him in something. And at one point, Minnie and Rosemary break away from them, and when they return, Guy seems totally entranced by the things that Roman is saying to him. Guy seems to really glom on to the Castavets, and one day, he finally agrees with Rosemary that they're going to try to have a baby. They decide to have a romantic evening, they have dinner, and Minnie stops by with some dessert, some chocolate mouse, or chocolate mousse, if you will. As Rosemary starts eating it, she mentions that it has a chalky undertaste. From there, Rosemary passes out, and we witness one of the most shocking, perverse, upsetting series of scenes in a dreamlike fashion, where Rosemary feels or sees that she's being raped by a demonic force. She wakes up the next morning, guys acting like nothing's happened, and she realizes that someone or something has had their way with her. Guy says that he's sorry and they really wanted to make a baby, so they had to do it that night. A little while later, Rosemary learns that she is indeed pregnant and very, very happy about that, but things start to get weirder. She goes to a doctor that the Castavets recommend. They start really putting themselves into her life more and more and more. And as this is happening, Guy's luck starts to change. He starts getting more roles, and everything seems to be on the up and up for him. And as things are going on the up and up for him, Rosemary's health is steadily declining. She's becoming thinner, and she's in a lot of pain. When an old friend Hutch comes to visit, he confirms this for her. So many things begin to happen, and one of the things is that Hutch requests a meeting with Rosemary, and she agrees to meet with him, but he never shows up, and then she learns that he's actually fallen into a coma. After he suddenly passes away, he leaves her a book called All of Them Witches. As she starts to read it, she feels more and more and more that the cast of Ats and all their old weird friends are actually witches and that they're part of a coven, and they want to sacrifice her baby. Guy keeps telling her, this is nonsense, you know, you're out of your mind, you silly little woman, and Rosemary's clinging to her sanity at this point. And as she grows more and more pregnant, she becomes more and more fearful. She even tries to go back to her original doctor at one point, but that doctor actually calls in her husband and the other doctor, Abe Saperstein. They cart her back to the creepy apartment in the Bramford, and she tries to break away from them, runs, and it's this really harrowing scene where, you know, we've got this heavily pregnant woman desperately trying to get away from these men, and they eventually catch her and sedate her. When she comes to, she's told that she went through labor, but the child actually died. 
So she's in bed and she hears a baby crying through the walls. And in another quite harrowing scene, she grabs a kitchen knife and goes through the back of her apartment, which connects to the Castavets, and sees that her baby is still indeed alive and that all these old people are in a coven and that she actually gave birth to the Antichrist. And the film ends on such an amazing, ambiguous note where Rosemary actually begins to look at her child as a mother. And we're left with this uncertainty of where she is and where she's going to go. But in this moment, she seems to be accepting of this child. That's right. And this last scene, I couldn't help but think as I was re-watching that it really delivers the goods. It confirms all of our suspicions. We were pretty sure that she was right, and they were all goddamn wishes. But it's when you are in the room hearing them all say, Hail Satan, and they say it more than once with a terrifying glee. Hail Adrian! Hail Satan! Hail Satan! We don't get to see what Adrian's eyes look like, but Rosemary's sheer horror, her own eyes are just so horrifying that we know it's something really bad. And as Alex mentioned, the note that the film ends on, there's a really interesting exchange between Roman and Rosemary about, you want me to be a mother to this child, well, aren't you his mother? And I thought it's a really interesting discourse that we often hear pertaining to paternity, uh, that you can be a dad, but to be a father, you have to this and that. And there's kind of two dimensions of parenthood, and one is the biological and the genetic, and the other has to do with the care. For me, I thought it was such an interesting moment because for the whole film, Rosemary has really wanted to be a mother. She's always wanted a child. That's, that's never been in question. And she's gone to such lengths to protect this unborn child. And in that one scene, we, we actually see that she might reject it. Because before that, she didn't think that she was, you know, carrying the spawn of the devil. She thought that they were going to take her baby and sacrifice it. So it's, it was a really interesting moment when you see that maternal love win out over her kind of Christian background or her own sense of right or wrong. And I think it's, it's an exceptionally complicated moment. But in the end, it's this kind of inversion of what she wanted. You're trying to get me to be his mother? Aren't you his mother? Something she wanted so badly and she suffered for. For the bulk of the film, she is in horrible pain. We've got this already waifish Mia Farrow just looking like... One of her friends comments at one point that she looks like a piece of chalk. And I, it's very apt. And she is sick and she is hurting for the whole thing, just suffering to deliver this baby. So the inner turmoil is felt all around, I'm sure. And as we were already talking about the time, the film came out in 1968. The film, just as the book, is set in 1966. So the pill became legal in the United States, I believe, in 1960, even though there were still a ton of restrictions on it. And we see in the early parts of the film that Guy and Rosemary seem to have a sex life of some sort, or it's the kind of thing where Rosemary asks for it and Guy just starts taking off his clothes, which is as romantic as you can get pretty much these days. But I thought it was really interesting because the women's reproductive rights, it's, it's still very present within this film. When they have the party about midway through the film when Rosemary's insistent that she's going to invite their old friends who are actually their young friends and they're going to have a party. You know, you see all these kind of like hip, young women. And then at one point when some of the women get Rosemary alone and they're trying to talk to her and they're telling her that pain like this isn't normal, Rosemary says in her throes of being upset and angry and hurting, she just says, I won't have an abortion. 
And they say, well, you don't have to do that, but you need to go to see a proper doctor. You need to get a second opinion. And I really liked that moment because it wasn't ignoring that all these options were available to women. And it was really confirming that Rosemary, in a lot of ways, probably had access to those things and certainly did for a long time. And, you know, she really made this choice and she thought she was part of that choice to have a baby. Right. And that scene came right after Dr. Saperstein directly telling her, do not read books and do not listen to what your friends say. It's obviously a tremendously isolating thing to hear from the point of view of a pregnant woman. And she had this party thinking it's going to make her feel better. And one by one, her guests are telling her, holy crap, you look like shit. Normally, when you see a pregnant lady, you get to tell them how they're glowing and they're resplendent. And for fuck's sake, for whatever reason, it's true. But she, she had to miss out on some of that. And I thought that was really, really sad. Now, women's reproduction, I felt that reproductive rights and politics were really in the forefront of this film, and yet that's not really what I read a lot when I was reading up on this film. The late 60s was a time of increasing independence for women. People are coming back from Vietnam. Women are having the choice between careers and families, and that was kind of still very much a choice. Toward the 80s, it was more like, I want to be able to do both, and paternity leave became more of a thing. But at this time it was also becoming increasingly medicalized, both with the emergence and popularity of the birth control pill, as Alex mentioned, but there was also that giant scandal about thalidomide, which was a pill given to expecting mothers to ward off morning sickness that actually mutated their embryos. And it's obviously a horrible example of medicine gone wrong, but it is an example of medical interference in nature that goes wrong. Afternoon. I have several announcements. Every doctor, every hospital, every nurse have been notified. Every woman in this country must be aware that it's most important that they check their medicine cabinet and that they do not take this drug. In the early 1960s, no drug struck more fear into the hearts of pregnant women. One of the most horrifying episodes in medical history. Than thalidomide. It changed our relationship with the drugs we use. One reason U.S. drug laws are so strict, thalidomide. And became an example of what many saw as corporate greed at its worst. British thalidomide children so far have not received any compensation from the rich company that made the drug which crippled them so brutally. But this dark chapter is only part of thalidomide's enigmatic story, one that continues to reverberate today. Another thing I really liked about this film was that I think in some respects, and I imagine especially in the 60s, pregnancy feels like a very private thing. You're resplendent and you are, you know, those warm, gooey things that Andrew was talking about and that's how you're seen. And then when the actual birth happens, it happens behind closed doors. And from everything I've heard, it, it sounds actually kind of horrific. Now, what I think we see a lot of in Rosemary's Baby is so many other people taking a vested interest in Rosemary's pregnancy. She was the one in the couple out of her and Guy that really wanted to have children. And it's Guy's feeling that he's like relented to this big thing to his wife and he holds it over her a little bit. And you have all these people interfering and telling her things and telling her not to listen to her instincts. And it's only her friends at the party who say, you do actually have to listen to your instincts. Those are what's kicking in. Those are, you know, survival. And you've got these old people who I'm like, God, I hope they're barren by this point. And, you know, an older male doctor just telling her not to read books, not to follow through with anything and to just listen to Minnie. 
Minnie Castavet has a herbarium. I'm gonna have her make a daily drink for you that'll be fresher, safer, and more vitamin-rich than any pills on the market. I was reading an article about Rosemary's Baby in a book by a scholar named Lucy Fisher, and she posited the idea that Minnie was actually a kind of patriarchal, veiled notion of a midwife. Now, in you know the Middle Ages, midwives were seen as witches, but they actually had a lot of great insight into helping women and babies live. But there is a worry that you know when the midwife stepped away with the baby, they might like offer it to the Prince of Darkness. What Fisher posited was that Minnie, in a lot of ways, actually acted as a midwife. She, you know, gave her that tannis root. She was making her these fresh herbal drinks. She was doing all these things and checking in on her and taking care of her and watching over her. And it's, it's an interesting thing to take away that she was this satanic midwife that maybe Rosemary just missed the point of. Right. It was actually kind of reactionary in that way. I mean, first of all, I find it weird that this movie conflates Satanists with witchcraft. We already did an episode on witchcraft. We talked about Wicca. We talked about the witch trials. We talked about the culture and all the pomp and circumstance. And, you know, the ties to Satanism, especially uh, modern Satanism as we understand it today, are really thin to say the least. So that was an interesting parallel the midwifery and the natural childbirth and natural vitamins and stuff being dismissed and particularly when Dr. Saperstein said there was a complication with the pregnancy and it would have been fine had it been in a hospital but you wouldn't listen so he essentially blames everything on Rosemary it's so hard to watch it's dead in the wrong position the hospital I might have been able to do something about it but you wouldn't listen Another interesting point about the time is that at that time, wives were still very much the property of their husband. A factoid that I'm really fond of dropping because it's so absolutely horrific is that marital rape was legal in Canada within my lifetime. (laughs) And that's just fucked. But Rosemary is the chip in Guy's Faustian contract. Guy's pretty much assured success in this very difficult to succeed field of being an actor and he just throws her in the ring and I find it interesting that they didn't even bother to try to feel her out to see if she might be interested in this right like if she loves her husband maybe she'd be willing to you know rent out her womb for nine months to the prince of darkness but they never even consider it I thought about that too and the conclusion I came to was that it had to do with Terry the young woman who Rosemary meets and it's never it's again one of the other things I love about this movie is that it states so few things matter-of-factly but Terry was living with the cast of Ets, and then the one night she throws herself out of the window leaving this kind of haphazard suicide note and literally you have a scene where the cops are just like standing around you know going oh well that's case closed we're done okay let's move it along and there's an argument that Rosemary and Guy hear later that night between Roman and Minnie. You can kind of hear this argument about having to start over again. Now listen to me, we wouldn't have had to do this. We'd have been all set to go now instead of having to start all over from scratch. I told you not to tell her in advance. I told you she wouldn't be open-minded. You know, so there is a sense that they just are so tired of these young women who will just, like, come along, eat their food, sleep on their couch and not be raped by the devil. Well, that's right. Roman and Minnie are an affluent elderly couple, and Terry admits that they kind of scooped her off the street, that she was involved in some heavy stuff. So maybe they thought that she would be an easy target, whereas Rosemary, even though she was a lapsed Catholic, I kind of wish they gave her a shot. I kind of wish there was a couple of probing questions to feel her out. It would have been a different movie for sure. 
certainly the m- most horrific thing, especially in the first half of the film, if not the entire film, is the rape scene because it it's always going to be horrific. And the way uh, that Polanski shot it in this dreamlike state, but it still feels real and everything is in focus and there is something deeply wrong and we're seeing a subjective and objective view of it. And we know from the very beginning that they never, as Andrea was saying, they never asked Rosemary, they never approached her. And so this whole thing has been without her consent. Even the next morning when when Rosemary looks shocked at Guy and is upset and hurt, he puts it on her and like, well, you're the one that wanted a baby. I didn't want to miss baby night. You And a couple of my nails were ragged and, and it was kind of fun in a necrophile sort of way. Right, and I thought that sex scene that you alluded to a little bit earlier about, Guy, let's make love. We have no furniture. It's really turning me on. It's jankety, and it's awkward, and it's silent. There's no romance. You didn't fluff it up at all. And I honestly think that that scene was just to establish that Rosemary's not frigid, whereas that rape scene might have looked a little bit different if we hadn't seen them be physical up until then. That, oh, she wants a baby, but she doesn't want to give it up. This little Catholic girl, you know, it would have changed things. Well, and even as the... uh chocolate mouse is taking hold of rosemary and he's like oh i'm gonna put you to bed and she says no we we have to try for a baby maybe it's because we've just become more aware of the rape culture that we live in it it's so horrific when you think of the parallels and how this kind of thing is still happening not with the devil i don't think but it's a really shocking thing to watch especially when we're still grappling with a lot of those same issues today So now we should talk about Rosemary herself, because in the documentaries and the making ofs and the papers I've read, the original Rosemary, according to the book, was supposed to be kind of a, you know, a milk-fed woman, let's say. Whereas Mia Farrow is pretty much the definition of the 60s wayfish glam look. And this was, Polanski took a bit of a chance on Mia Farrow in this role. This was her first cinematic role. She had been on TV up till then. And this was her breakthrough, and she just kills it. She's in virtually every scene, and she just eats up the camera. You can't take your eyes away from her. And I think the fact that she is so petite and girlish actually fosters this desire to protect her and for her to be okay. And I also feel like it's important to mention that she's established as a pretty reliable narrator. She calls it as she sees it. And even within that dreamlike sequence when she's getting raped and she says the iconic line, This is no dream. This is really happening. You believe her. You never for a second doubt her. Well, as we've talked about in this podcast before, the theory of Laura Mulvey's of the female gaze, I I think this is a totally female gaze-centric film. I mean, the book is written from Rosemary's perspective. The film, as Polanski has said, is told from Rosemary's perspective. There are so many shots, or at least enough shots in her point of view, that really lend itself to us seeing something kind of special and different, and we don't deviate from her. We're not getting a lot of scenes with, like, guy hanging out with the cast of Ets and plotting it and him being engaged and toyed with and wined and dined he's really a peripheral character and so when we have as much knowledge as Rosemary has it's a really powerful thing and I think in so many ways it was such an eye-opening film for a lot of people because she is this intelligent bright sharp funny young woman who is hopeful that's the one thing I always get from this character she's so hopeful she is hopeful in her husband she's got that starry-eyed look at him that he's probably the cutest guy she's ever seen 
and she just can't believe her luck. And throughout this whole film, we just see that hope get stripped away. In one documentary, I saw that when Roman Polanski originally read the novel for the first half, he thought it was, quote, a kitchen melodrama for TV. So even he picked up on the novelty of this women's point of view, that it's not something you saw a lot in film. It's certainly not in something that you would call horror. Now, this was Polanski's first American film and his second film that you could call maybe a genre film. And this is obviously a figure with tremendous darkness all around him. Now, my first big foray into Roman Polanski's darkness, I mean, obviously, I, I'm i not a huge news reader, but you learn things. You knew that there was a scandal with him involving a young girl and a quaalude, and the word rape got thrown around, but the word rape got thrown around in a different way in the 80s than it is now, thank fuck. But my experience in confronting the topic of Roman Polanski and what he did really came to the forefront when I was a guest on the Rue Morgue podcast a couple of years ago. We did an episode on I Spit on Your Grave, and there was such a huge comment troll war on the website after that that we had to do a follow-up episode. So that was the first time that we really delved into the topic of Roman Polanski, and if you'd like to go back into the Rue Morgue podcast archives, it was the follow-up to I Spit on Your Grave. Essentially, as the story goes, Roman Polanski was accused of giving a young girl a quaalude and then raping her. Now, Roman Polanski is clearly a genius in his right. He's a very tortured individual. He survived and escaped the Holocaust. He was famously married to Sharon Tate, who was killed by the Manson family. Like, this guy's been through some fucked up shit. But then he makes these amazing movies that was enabling people to turn a blind eye to this huge rape scandal. And what happened when he was accused is he actually fled to Europe. And to make matters worse, he continued to make amazing movies that won Academy Awards as a fugitive from the United States. So it's a very, very contentious issue. I don't think we can talk about a Polanski film without at least mentioning that there is this huge scandal. I think for me, it's it's just a hard thing to separate. And I don't know if you ever can or if you ever should. I think that there is a lot of sympathy towards Polanski. And we've seen this with several other famous men who are in culture and do bad things and get away with it, or at least get away with it for a time being. Uh, I mean, there was a 2007 or 2008 documentary called Roman Polanski Wanted and Desired. And if you could have a sympathetic look at a rapist, (laughs) it's that film. Roman was totally exceptional. Already an established film director, everybody knew him. He was the Roman Polanski. The future was his. We thought, and then everything just collapsed. He didn't perceive having intercourse with a 13-year-old girl is against the law. The fact of Polanski leaving the country seems to have eclipsed what actually happened to the system of justice. The judge was enjoying the publicity, and he didn't care about what happened to me, and he didn't care about what happened to Polanski. Not much to tell you, except that I'm innocent. Rittenband was known as a hammer. He was a tough sentencer. If you didn't make a deal, you were in trouble. In France, he's desired... And in America, he's wanted. 
it's a very well-made film, and it makes this case that poor Polanski, he was so hounded, and it's a totally acceptable thing to kind of do in Europe, and, you know, the district attorney fucked up the case, and that's why he fled. I think knowing all of this and knowing his history, it actually complicates the movie even more than um, some other famous figures like this because of the rape scene in Rosemary's Baby that we were just talking about, the emotional manipulation, all of these things that kind of keep happening. They intersect with these weird parts of his life so much. But I think what we have to mention, and if you don't already know, Rosemary's Baby has been called one of the best and most literal adaptations of a book ever. Polanski took large parts of dialogue, even, you know, the colors that Ira Levin described. He really took that and just turned it into a film and really put his lens on it. So I think for the female gaze, the feminist aspects, the critique of patriarchy and misogyny, that doesn't come from Polanski himself. That comes from Ira Levin, who actually went on to do several other great books, including The Stepford Wives. The documentary that I saw online was actually a lot of great footage of Mia Farrow, who considers Roman Polanski a very, very great man, in addition to being a great artist. They worked very well together because Polanski was very exact, and he would tell her exactly what she wanted to do. And her, being new to the big movie industry, she needed to be told exactly what to do. Whereas Guy, her counterpart, was a famous improv actor, and he actually butted heads with Polanski because he wanted to improvise and maybe I'll do something a little like this. Roman wouldn't say, look, I think this scene is about this, or I want this from this scene. He would say, she does Rosemary, she goes here, she does this, and he would, he's an actor as well, and a very fine actor. He would act out the scene. You know, he does it in a way that might be extreme, but you totally get what he wants. So I found it to be very, a helpful shorthand. I knew exactly what he wanted. Yeah, and John Castavetes, who plays Guy, he's also a director. So, you know, when you have this little, like, shit-hot European director come in and bounce around and have all these crazy new wave ideas, essentially, and you've got this American man and John Castavetes who thinks he knows how it should be done, and he's very method. He really came out of that actor's studio kind of thing, which was great because that whole essence really helped lend itself to Guy, making him that total dick that you just hate. And I think it actually worked a lot better and more, as you were saying, Andrea, serendipitously. And you wouldn't have had that if you'd had someone who I think was completely subservient to Polanski the way that maybe Mia Farrow was or certainly had that respect and reverence for him. Well, that's a really interesting point, especially when you're playing a role of someone as loathsome as Guy is. Of course, you want to crack a joke here and there. Of course, you want to humanize Guy a little bit. But by the end of it, you could just snap his fucking neck. Well, here's a question. Do you think Guy's a good actor? I don't know. That little spiel he did on those crutches. Don't be so violent, Harry. You want to be stupid, be non-violent stupid. In love with no one, especially not your fat wife. Well, that's true. But you know what, Andrea? I think he really sold me that Yamaha. I was in a long-term relationship with an actor, not to get too personal, but I actually watched this movie with him, and I always kind of had that in the back of my head, and he's a great guy, he really is, and it's just like, how much are you acting in this? How much is your little performance, and then when you get away from it all, how much is real? And I really felt that, because you see like madcap moments when Guy is acting, and they're very few and far between, 
But I really feel like all he's trying to do, and he's doing a really shitty job at it, is playing the husband. Like, he can't commit to it. He can't, especially after the night where Rosemary's raped, you know, she says, you don't look at me, you know, we, we don't talk, we don't do these things. And he looks frightened of her. And the one moment which I, I absolutely love in this movie, one of many, is at the end of the party, and Rosemary and Guy are fighting, and she's finally putting her foot down, and she wants real help. And Guy's kind of getting really frustrated with her, and then she starts laughing. And it's this hysterical, glee-like laughter because the pain has finally stopped. And the way he walks away from her, and he just seems so scared because that's the moment when she can feel the baby kicking. <laughs> it's alive! Guy, it's moving! It's alive, it's all right! Feel Oh, yeah, I felt it. Don't be scared, it won't bite you. Oh, it's wonderful, it's really... <laughs> I feel it kicking. It's alive, it's moving. While we're on the topic of juicy behind-the-scenes gossip of this movie is another very famous factoid, is that Frank Sinatra served Mia Farrow with divorce papers on the set of this bitch. Apparently, I've heard a couple of versions of the story. One is that he wanted her to slow down her career when they got married and raise his babies, which she supposedly didn't, but we can talk about that a little bit later. Another story is that Frank Sinatra was making his own film called The Detective, which Mia Farrow was supposed to appear in, but The Detective kept getting delayed, and she really wanted to do Rosemary's Baby, so she went ahead and did it, much to Frank's anger and he served her divorce papers in the middle of a cut and she broke down and cried and then it was business as usual for my own part there there was pressure to leave um the film because i was supposed to do two films back to back and or integrated and then move over and this was uh my role in the the movie the detective with frank sinatra and that that date kept getting pushed back until in, in the end, really, my, my then husband just said, you know, it's either, either this Rosemary's baby or me. And then I, I, every weekend I was flying to New York and trying to make peace and saying, oh, you know, don't let it come to this, you know. But, you know, he was Sicilian. And it was about, it was about you know, uh, doing what he wanted, you know. And I, 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 I loved him, and we remained friends to the day he died. But he, I, I, I couldn't leave a movie. My, my mother was uh, an, an actress, a terrific actress. My father, a screenwriter and director. They didn't come from the kind of people that would walk out after three months working on a movie. So it was never in question. But it was an agonizing thing, and I just hoped that he didn't mean it. So it, it almost really parallels Rosemary's marriage to Guy in a more extreme way. I mean, you know, the turmoil that she was going through was something that she could really relate to. So I don't know if everyone out there has heard of this term called gaslighting. And this is a form of mental abuse that someone will inflict, usually on a very close person in their lives. And the term is actually taken from a play called Gaslight. It was a play that was written and I think initially performed in 1938. It got turned into a film in 1944. And what happens is, is the husband actually starts driving a wife insane. And Gaslight actually comes from the fact that he was slowly dimming the lights in the house. She would say, are the lights getting darker? Is it getting darker in here? And he said, no, you're crazy. Stop it. And it's a way of actually driving someone insane by slowly eating away at their own sense of self. And I think Rosemary's Baby is the perfect example of that. The way Guy browbeats her and takes her down, 
And for me, I think it's really prevalent in the scene when Minnie drops off the chocolate mousse and she's saying there's something wrong with it and Guy keeps insisting that there's not. Has an undertaste. A chalky undertaste. I don't get it. That's silly, honey. There is no undertaste. There is. Come on, the old bat slaved all day. Now eat it. I don't like it. It's delicious. Here, you can have mine. I don't eat it. There's always something wrong. Oh, if it's gonna turn into a big thing. Look, if you really can't stand it, just don't eat it. Mm, it's delicious. No undertaste at all. So this is a really hard topic, and it's a very real topic that exists in this world. And I think what you have here and what it goes to show in this film is how strong-willed Rosemary actually is. You know, she does enough to get by with Guy, but she really, you know, about halfway through the film, she knows that there's something really wrong and that maybe he's just a prick or maybe there's something else up. And then by the climax of the film, she's convinced that he's involved with it. Hey, uh, promise me you wouldn't be hurt. And you haven't been, really. I mean, supposing you had the baby and you lost it. Wouldn't that be the same? We're getting so much in return wrong. So that all going to say that Rosemary really knows who she is for being kind of a sheltered young woman, a woman from ostensibly a good family, good upbringing, good Catholic or Christian girl. She still knows herself. And I think that's so impressive and it's still incredibly rare in films today it's true and i was trying to think about this in relation to the haircut and i want to say the haircut like that and if i could speak in italics that's what you would be hearing when i say the haircut because it's a very drastic haircut it was a drastic haircut within the film and it was also a drastic haircut within the time you can hear rosemary in the movie say more than once that it's v dallas Sassoon. it's a nice little <laughs> sponsored product placement type shit going on there. But Guy is so mean to her about that haircut. And when he tells her, you know, it looks terrible, point blank. Like, this is, he's past the passive-aggressive phase to the point that he's just being a fucking dick. And he tells her that it's, you know, probably the worst mistake you've ever made. She doesn't even blink. I've got to say, to her credit, she doesn't fight him on it. She doesn't change her hair. She doesn't start wearing hats or anything like that. She's just like, oh, yeah, really? I think it was her trying to transform. I think, I mean, obviously Mia Farrow's gorgeous and she would look good with anything on her head probably. It's, you know, she she just found out she's pregnant at that point in the film, I believe. And, uh, you know, it's like they say about women. It's like when something, when we go through some kind of major change in our life, we like to change our hair. And for me, it was part of that transformation. She was trying to take on that role of motherhood and maybe shed that girlish coil that the hair had, that girlish kind of schoolgirl quality. What's that? I, I've been to Vidal Sassoon. Don't tell me you paid for that. So to change gears a little bit, as much as we'd like to talk about haircuts for the rest of the episode... <laughs> Stephen King famously noted that Rosemary's Baby deals with a time where God was dead and there was a widespread crisis of faith. Now, this quote is pulled directly from when a panicked Rosemary is trying to get an emergency appointment with Dr. Saperstein 
She's sweating. She's freaking out. She grabs a nearby Time magazine to distract herself. And on the front of it says, Is God Dead? And that was actually a real magazine and a real headline that really made waves in media. Yeah, it was the first time in 20th century American culture where God was really being put into question. It was really being taken to task about who we are and, and what do we believe in and why do we believe in it. And, you know, the hippie movement was, you know, in full swing. And as the years progressed and as Roman Polanski would soon learn that there were these kind of satanic cults, the Charles Manson murders, all of these things going on that would try to break that perfect American mold. Because coming out of the 50s and, you know, going into Vietnam, the American dream changed. It wasn't about the white picket fence anymore. And that's what we're starting to see the end of in Rosemary's Baby. It's not about the house. It's not about the nuclear family. It's about what you can attain. And I think we see that most clearly in Guy and his willingness to give up his own wife in pursuit of his career. That's right. The definition of goodness had changed. There was an idea that to live the good life and to live the virtuous life was the best you can do. But as this movie demonstrates, people are willing to do anything to achieve the kind of success to give them the life that they want. And even if it means making a deal with the devil. Another thing to mention on this topic is, you know, the saying of the banality of evil. And the most evil characters in this film are the doddering old couple down the hall. They're the least evil, malevolent people you could think of. Even when Rosemary's sitting in the parlor at the end of the film and Minnie gives her a cup of tea. Here, drink this. You'll feel a little better. What's in it? Tatness or... Nothing's in it. Just plain, ordinary Lipton's tea. You drink it. There, she has that, you know, New Yorker granny type attitude and it perfectly fits and it completely subverts our expectations of what evil is and how evil is played out and I absolutely love it and I think this is kind of the pinnacle of it. It's true we always kind of expect the elderly to extol those old outdated virtues of goodness and Christianity and you don't expect an elderly couple to be Satanists really. When I think that was part of the genius of the film, and especially the way Polanski cast it. Now, we've already talked about Rosemary and Guy, but all of the older actors, pretty much all of them, they were all, the guy played Roman Castavats. He was like a matinee idol. A lot of them were comedian or comedians. So they had this familiar area where they inhabited the social sphere, but they completely flipped that on the head while they're still playing like doddering old people. So we mentioned that the film ends on a slightly ambiguous note. We are left to wonder what Rosemary decided to do and what role she continued to have. And I don't know, maybe if you're really imaginative, you wondered if there is an antichrist named Adrian <laughs> among us even today. There was a sequel, a made-for-TV sequel came out that was called Whatever Happened to Rosemary's Baby. And it is in its entirety on YouTube. It's in terrible quality, but that's actually okay because it is a terrible, terrible film. It is utter and total schlocky, campy garbage. And I got through maybe 15 minutes of it today and I laughed out loud a couple of times. So there's certain value in that. You don't want to laugh out loud at something like this. But what they did was they posited young Adrian still with his mom and his mom still resisting that he is the Antichrist and she's continuing to call him Andrew, which was the name she had selected if her child had have been a boy. 
It's also notable in the sequel that the only returning cast member from the film was Ruth Gordon, who played Minnie Castavets in the original. And she actually won an Oscar Best Supporting Actress that year when Rosemary's Baby came out for that portrayal. I think I've seen even less of it than Andrea, but I did read the uh, Wikipedia entry on it. And Patty Duke plays Rosemary. Stephen McGaddy, nice Canadian actor, shows up as an older version of Adrian. And other horror fans might know him from playing the lead in a little film called Pontypool. Now, in 1997, Ira Levin actually published a sequel to Rosemary's Baby called Son of Rosemary. And the basic premise of this is that shortly after the end of Rosemary's Baby, Rosemary is trying to raise her son, but the coven actually casts a spell on her and sends her into a coma. And she only wakes up in the year 1999. And she wakes up to a fully grown son who is this very popular, almost cult-like leader, like self-help guru. And there still might be something wrong. And she is desperately trying to determine what or if anything has happened and if she can still save him. I find it really interesting that the title of Rosemary's Baby, the film isn't called Antichrist, which is another film that we looked at already. This film isn't called Homegrown Satanism or something like that. This is Rosemary's Baby. This is Rosemary's experience of having this pregnancy taken away from her. And for the sequel to be called Son of Rosemary, it continues into that thread that this is Rosemary's experience with the devil and not necessarily societal or anything like that, which I think is really cool. And if you're interested in the book, I haven't read it, but I do want to, so hopefully I will get to that soon. But on the Criterion Collection edition of Rosemary's Baby that came out, I believe, two years ago now, there are some really great interviews, and as always, with Criterion, some great extras. And there's a really great radio interview with Ira Levin just as the uh, book was being published, and he talks about his hopes for it and what he wanted and what he wanted to do with it, and he actually kind of hoped. Sadly, never came about, but he wanted, obviously, to have a film made of it, still wanted Mia Farrow to star, and he always hoped, and he, he keeps mentioning it in this interview, that he really sees Brad Pitt as the son of Rosemary. So reading the book, I, I, you know, I think it'll be hard to get away from seeing Brad Pitt as playing the son of Mia Farrow. Or the son of Satan. <laughs> I'm living in America, and in America you're on your own. America's not a country. It's just a business. Now fucking pay me. So in addition to that shit-tastic sequel that you don't even need to watch, you can really take our word for it, but if you want to laugh, like I said, it's all on the YouTubes, there is a remake that was made by NBC earlier this year. It was a two-part miniseries event, you know how they like to do those. And I was actually given DVDs and assigned this to write for Rue Morgue magazine. Now, I watched it. And I honestly think that my review is the only positive review of this miniseries in existence. The critics hated it. They absolutely despised it. And from what I recall, Alex wasn't really a fan either. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't a fan of it going into it. And I have to say, I only watched probably the first half hour and maybe 45 minutes of it. I just... I was watching it. It's just an extended, slightly different version of what I had seen, and I just didn't feel the need to keep going with it. So I like some of the casting, like Jason Isaac, who plays the Roman Castavet's character in this. He's a great British actor, and I always love seeing him in things. And he was, you know, delightfully, sinisterly evil in this, and that's evil with, like, five E's. So that part I kind of liked, and it was fun, but it just... 
I, again, I haven't seen the whole thing, but I didn't feel like it added a lot to the conversation for me. Well, here's what I'll add to the conversation on its behalf. It made a couple of changes from the original storyline, most notably that the entire thing takes place in Paris instead of in New York City. And it was a situation where Guy and Rosemary moved to Paris in the hopes that Guy, who is actually an English professor and a struggling writer instead of an actor, and I think that may be because of today's times we're a bit more sympathetic to the plight of a struggling writer than we might be to a struggling actor in New York City. But it also speaks to nowadays a move over to Europe is pretty much the most disorienting thing that could happen. And while it does take away from bringing the horror home, like we talked about, it situated it in an alien land, but it accentuated Rosemary's disorientation for me. And the other big difference was that Roman Castavets, his wife, first of all, is Margot instead of Minnie. And Roman and Margot are a very worldly, exotic, and attractive couple. Whereas when you watch Roman and Minnie in the original film, they're pretty silly. The way they dress, they look like they just skipped a generation or something. Whereas this newfangled Roman and Margot were very worldly and very affluent. And there was a whole little storyline piece where they get Rosemary and Guy into that building because there's no way a struggling writer would have just gotten into that on his own. One of the shortcomings of the remake, in my opinion, was that, and I think this must have been at the request of the studio to jazz it up is there are these gore sequences that are totally over the top and unnecessary and really take you out of the film. They were really, really annoying and they kept happening throughout. Now, the remake was directed by a Polish director by the name of Agnieszka Holland and she is a very prolific Polish filmmaker and actually kind of a political hero. She was banned from Poland for her politically subversive films and was actually unable to see her own children in Poland at the time. So she knows a thing or two about being alienated from your child. And so the films that she makes are very politically charged, not so much feminist. Feminism isn't as central, but political oppression is a big theme that she's interested in. And so the remake follows Rosemary in much the same way as the original film did, but the satanic conspiracy was perhaps more overt. There were bits and bits of gore. But I thought it really accurately relayed how Rosemary might have dealt with things a little bit differently in 2014 than she might have back in the 60s. Not to say that the original Rosemary wasn't resolute and headstrong and stubborn and fully knowing of herself in her pregnancy, as we talked about, but so was this new Rosemary, and she had a couple more cards to play at her disposal in her plight this time, and I thought they mitigated that quite well. I'm never going to be able to provide my wife with the life that she deserves. If I had more money, maybe we can help you. I don't think I've ever seen so many zeros in one check. (laughs) I want to have a baby. I'm pregnant. We're pregnant. (laughs) Oh! What? The baby's kicking. Is there something wrong? There are some things in this ultrasound that I've never seen before. They're witches. They're witches in my building. Rosemary, you are acting paranoid. Ah. Nothing comes without a price. You told me she would be safe. Don't you understand? 
You were chosen to be his mother. By who? Anyway, I think it's a worthy remake. It doesn't take anything away from the original the way a really bad remake is wont to do. So if you're interested in checking it out, go ahead. I'd recommend at least giving it a watch, bearing in mind what I said about the gore sequences. I I thought it was really interesting how they presented the devil as a lot more attractive than it was in the original because uh, the devil is supposed to be kind of intriguing, isn't it? Another different spin the remake took on the original was in the very last scene after Rosemary has made the harrowing discovery and had the conversation with Roman about, well, you are his mother. Are you going to be his mother? Because you are his mother. But there's a scene where Rosemary is decked out to the nines. like She looks like a Parisian hot little starlet on spike high heels, pushing her carriage down a canal or something. And people are like, oh, how sweet looking in. Oh, isn't he cute? Doesn't he have the sweetest little eyes? And she's like, yeah. Yeah, he does. And so you have kind of a different conclusion that Rosemary has decided to raise this child as best she can in the world that we live in. And I actually think that's kind of a poignant commentary on how different the world is now from then is evil is something that we've largely come to live with and it's not a question of am I living an ethical life I mean my my sneakers are made by children in Indonesia the diamond in your ring is probably a blood diamond you know that the meat that you eat was probably not ethically cultivated from the world so we've learned to live within evil and I thought that was what the remake was trying to say in the end well and that leads me back to the ending of the 1968 film and I I think there is that delicious ambiguity to the whole thing, which is, you know, one of the reasons why I think it's a classic. You know, I really think you could take it one of two ways. So there is the sense that the devil will win out even in the face of motherhood and Christianity and God and all that we know to be good and true. But then there's another way you can take it. And I think it's that Rosemary chooses to reject or possibly chooses to reject Christianity and the perceived notion of good because her love for her son is so resolute. And I think that subtle flip of the coin is actually pretty huge. And I know when the film came out, you know, Ray Bradbury, he he was very upset about it. There were a lot of really big thinkers and writers and scholars who were very upset about the way it treated God and Christianity. But to look at it as someone deciding to leave something and making that choice for themselves because of what they believe, it's much more powerful and much more of a choice than I think if you choose to believe that the devil just wins out over everything. I feel like the bond between mother and child has kind of achieved this almost mythical status. First of all, the traditional belief that women were made to be mothers and that this is an innate thing. And and this was a critique against the birth control pill is that even if you don't think you want kids, if you were to become pregnant, you will fall in love with that little microscopic cell in you and everything will change and you will be willing to rip someone's throat out if it means protecting your child. And I think that's a myth that's largely being challenged in contemporary culture. There's been public research done about postpartum depression. There's been horrible cases of real-life crime, of women abandoning their newborn kids or killing them and stuff like that. So I think that that mythology of the mother-child bond is slowly kind of being dismantled, which was something that was maybe touched upon a little bit in the remake in a really non-committal and subtle way. But I, I think that mythology is touched on really well in the original film. 
Well, I think we're just asking the question. We've been asking it this whole episode, and I, I don't think either of us do have an answer or should have an answer about what are the extremes you would go for love? And who do you choose to love? How do you choose to love them? And what boundaries do you put on that? And Rosemary is tested at this time and again. And it's such a powerful question, and it is such an intimate question. And I think what Rosemary's Baby really succeeds at is being that very intimate film that those questions require. We are in her home, we are in her life, we are in her head, and we are allowed to experience it so that when Rosemary for herself makes the choice to perhaps try to love this child or at least try to mother it, we're there with her and we understand it. That's right. That's a very good point. And if you've been following horror news, you know that there's a big buzz about a little indie Australian film that came out earlier this year called The Duke, And it stormed the horror film festivals here in Toronto. It got a huge, huge buzz. I recently got an opportunity to check it out. And I have a really good feeling that it'll wind up being a podcast episode one day. But... If you can get your hands on it, if you're interested in the themes that we talk about in Rosemary's Baby, they're explored in very interesting ways in The Babadook. So if you're into this kind of thing, you should check that out for sure. If it's in a word or it's in a look, you can't get rid of The Babadook. A rumbling sound, then three sharp knocks. That's when you'll know that he's around. You'll see him if you look. He wants to scare you first. Then you'll see it. This monster thing has got to stop. You can't get rid of the pepper dog. right now that's it but I think as we've hopefully already proven there's so much to talk about in this film and there are so many elements that we still haven't talked about in this film but I think to give you a cohesive episode you know we're going to end the conversation here but that all going to say any of your ideas any themes you like in it, any themes you don't like in it anything that really speaks to you in this film we'd love to hear it because you know we could go on and on about it and I think that just speaks to the strength of this movie. That's right. So send us your comments. We'll take them over email through the contact form on our website or as a comment on the episode itself on the website. And we are still running a contest. We are giving away two copies of Rue Morgue Magazine's new supplement called Horror Heroes. We've got two copies of that to give away, and we are going to give them away to people who are reviewing us on iTunes. We'll take good reviews, we'll take bad reviews, but we'd prefer to take good reviews. And that contest is going to run all the way up until the end of December, and we will be announcing the winner on our January podcast. 
So when you write that good, bad, or other review of us, we just ask that you please email us with your iTunes username, the country you're reviewing it in, just so we can check it out. And then we will take the entries from our email. You can email us at info at facultyofhorror.com. You can also always email us there with you know comments, concerns, questions, because as we will have in January, we're going to have our assessment episode. So anything you want to add to the conversation, anything you want us to touch on, that's where you want to send it. And we'd also like to mention that we had a bit of an interesting experience in that another podcast reviewed us. If you've ever heard of Pod on Pod, it's a brief podcast. It's only about a half an hour long, but the whole premise of the thing is that there are so many fucking podcasts out there. How are you supposed to know which ones are good? Well, these two guys listen to a couple of episodes of a podcast and they critique it and they evaluate the podcast based on, you know, host likability and the topics and the frequency and all that and they did the faculty of horror for their halloween episode and we linked to it on our website and they gave us quite a favorable review so thank you guys very much for that we really appreciate it it's actually harrowing to listen to a podcast it's it's exciting to get comments and emails and stuff but to hear another podcast talking about our podcast was kind of weird and kind of really cool and we're so glad that they dug it Yeah, and welcome to all the new listeners or some new listeners that have found us through that and the other mentions and things that we've gotten through there. So thank you so much. It's it's an exciting time to be a part of the Faculty of Horror. And on that note, office hours are closed. Rosemary, heaven restores you in life. Coming with me Through the aging, the fearing, the strife It's the smiling on the package It's the faces in the sand It's the thought that moves you upward Embracing me with two hands Right, we'll take you places Yeah, maybe to the beach When your friends, they do come crying Tell them now your pleasure's set upon slow
cards under the belly, lay some grease inside my hand. It's a sentiment. 